You're listening to Nutrition Matters Podcast with Paige Smathers, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Hey everyone, it's Paige, your favorite nutrition podcaster and dietitian. Nutrition Matters Podcast explores what really matters in nutrition and health with a sensitive and realistic approach. This podcast relies on the support of listeners like you and needs donations to keep this project running. To help support the podcast, please consider making a donation at pagesmathersrd.com slash podcast. If you find this episode interesting, engaging, or helpful in your life, please consider donating, sharing with friends and family, and leaving a review on iTunes. You can leave a review about this podcast straight from your podcast app, search Nutrition Matters Podcast, click reviews, and then write a review. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Paige Smathers RD if you'd like to have a little more food for thought. Thank you for listening. Hey everyone, welcome to Nutrition Matters Podcast. My name is Paige Smathers and I'm so glad you're here and I'm so excited to share this conversation that I had with Anna Sweeney, who is such an incredible person with such a great story and so many interesting things to share about her perspective when it comes to body image and nutrition and food, and uh, you're, you're just in for a real treat here, so can't wait to share this with you. So just to introduce Anna to you, she is a dietitian and a supervisor, a clinical supervisor, and specializes in a non-diet health ever, at every size approach to nutrition and health, and she primarily focuses her practice on eating disorders and disordered eating, and she is on a supervisory role at multiple eating disorder treatment centers, including um, Montanito. I hope I'm saying that right. She is the owner of Whole Life Nutrition Counseling in Concord, Massachusetts. So if you're local and looking for someone, uh, check her check her work out. Check her out. Okay. And I apologize for the stuff you knows here. I've been a little bit sick, as many of us have been this winter. Um, but thanks for rolling with the punches with me. So I want to make sure that everybody listening knows about some resources available to you. The first is my Nutrition Matters podcast community on Facebook. We'd love to have you join us there and be a part of the discussion. And then also my online course, which you can find more information on at pagesmathersrd.com slash course. So this is a course that walks you through you know, how to really take this non-diet approach and this uh, healing your relationship with food to the next level. So check it out, see if it might be a good fit for you. And it's especially relevant for anyone who feels like you have just been on a diet roller coaster for your whole life or for many, many years and you want to be done with it, but you don't know how. So that's kind of who the course is designed for. And, um, with that, let's get into talking to Anna Sweeney about her story when it comes to struggling to accept this body. Um, I think you're going to really enjoy her perspectives, and I highly recommend you check out her and her work once you've heard more about uh, her and her story. All right, enjoy. Well, hello, Anna. Welcome to Nutrition Matters Podcast. Hi, Paige. Thanks so much for having me with you today. This is just such a pleasure. It's so great to finally connect, and I'm so excited to chat with you about your story and whatever else comes up. So take just a quick minute and just kind of introduce yourself. 
Sure. Um, so my name is Anna Sweeney, and I am a dietitian. I practice in Concord, Massachusetts. I am, like you, uh, an eating disorder specialist and someone who helps people move away from diet culture um, and move towards what I hope is body respect and intuitive eating and just a more gentle way of being on the planet. Um, and I am also a full-time disabled person, and that is something that is newly becoming kind of part of my identity. It certainly is something that affects the clients that I take care of in person because they can see me. Um, and I am really actively becoming increasingly vocal about my kind of my lived experience around around becoming disabled and I'm finding that it's a really positive and powerful thing. So that's a really, really brief snippet of who I am. But So when did you start talking yeah. more about that? Just a, I feel like just maybe a year ago, right? This is kind it of was, new. So it was it really wasn't even a year ago because I think IADEP was in was it February? I don't know. Maybe maybe it was about about a year ago. Um, do you want to tell that story? I know this story and I'd love, I'd love to hear it. I, I, I will tell, I will tell this story. Um, so I went to the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals conference. Um, I'm a CEDRD and I needed to go for my every four year accreditation or accreditation, um, and so I went, this was the first time I'd ever attended an IADEP conference and I was in Vegas and I didn't know at the time, which I, I know now, but I didn't know at, a t at the time that I was able to bring my own wheelchair on um, an airplane. So I rented a scooter at the hotel and I had a really fascinating experience. So I was here, I was one of 900 and some eating disorder professionals at this conference, staying in a huge resort hotel in Las Vegas. And what happened was really, really fascinating um, because my peers, the people at the conference, didn't look at me, they didn't engage me, they didn't, it was very, it was very bizarre because I, my entire life I've been I mean, people have talked to me. And so I had this very interesting experience of becoming invisible, of so, sitting down in this scooter and people are not looking at me. So really quick, talk about, talk about what the transition, like what happened for you where you've had kind of, you've been able to be in both situations where you were seen, you were heard, you were talked to, mm -hmm. you were acknowledged, and then all of a sudden this stark contrast of being in a wheelchair and seeing what life is like from that angle. So I, I have two things to say about that. One, um, a scooter is a really different thing from a wheelchair. Okay. And I didn't know this. I, I know this now. I didn't know that. I didn't know it then. Um, being, so the scooter that I rented, it's like a motorized cart and I, I don't I don't exactly know why, but there's something really um, there's something that's really deterrent about it. So we're looking at that which is other. Um, make it makes people uncomfortable. And I think about myself. Like would I look at someone who was in a motorized scooter? I don't know. Um, 
I, I hope at this point that I would, but I appreciate why it might have made other people uncomfortable. Um, in my current wheelchair, and I just for what it's worth, and this is not really important, but I use my wheelchair when I travel, period, basically. Or if I'm going to the mall and I need to go someplace and travel long distance, otherwise, I use a walker and try and walk as much as I can. Um, but my life in a wheelchair is very, very unique, I think, uh, because I live with thin privilege and I am young and I am attractive in accordance to conventional standard. And so people are really, really generous with me when I'm in my, in, in my personal wheelchair. And this, that actually, I, I got that after I attended the IADEP conference. So I had this really... So there's a distinction between the scooter and the wheelchair? Uh, absolutely. Wow. Without, without any question, um, if only based on the response of, of my peers. And I really can't, I can't fully explain it because what was fascinating is that I would be on the casino floor and it was because we were in a casino, there were people that were not eating disorder professionals at the event and at, on the casino floor, people looked at me and perhaps it had been because they had been playing poker since nine o'clock in the morning and, <laughs> yeah. and drinks are free in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, but uh, people smiled at me and made eye contact with me as though I were in fact a human. Mm. And when I was, and this is obviously not uniform across the board, but there were a number of people who knew to look for me in a scooter who walked directly past me on more than one occasion. And wow. I don't believe for a moment that that was because anyone was trying to be hurtful. I think it is because of the idea of like, I don't, I don't want to stare. I don't want to stare at that thing that is other. I don't want to make someone feel uncomfortable because if I look at that, then they're going to feel like I'm looking at them or, I'm, or they're going to feel like I'm staring at them. Um, but we all want to be seen, right? <laughs> We have to be seen. Yeah. We actually, we have to be seen. And, and when we're not, it's, that's the kind of, when we start doing crazy things. Totally. Not, not uniformly, but it was, it was pretty horrifying. It was horrifying and it was, um, it was horrifying because I didn't expect it from our, our peer group. I really expected more of, of us as a, as a group. And again, I'm not uniformly saying that everyone ignored me because that's, that is not the case. I made really great friends and I met a lot of really wonderful people. Um, and I will never, I'll never forget at the end of the conference, there was a woman that was staying on the same floor that I was on and she was, she was an older woman. She didn't introduce herself to me, but she came up to me at the end of the conference when she was with her luggage leaving and she said, I, I, Oh, she didn't say Anna. She didn't know my name. She put her hand on my arm and just said, thank you so much for always smiling. And it made me, and cause I, I actually did that. I'd like, I plastered a smile on my face. Yeah, I don't know everybody around me <laughs> comfortable. Yeah. Um, I didn't know how to react to it either because it was just, I was there. I had my name tag. It said I was a CEDRD. It said, like, I deserved to be there. I was a part of the crew just as much as anybody else. And 
it felt a little placating and it felt a little bit like, oh, you're such a trooper. Um, yeah, kind of like, thanks for making me feel more comfortable about you being yes. in a scooter by smiling. Yeah. Yes. That, and that's, that's kind of what I came away from it with. Um, and I, so I, and I actually feel, I feel good. I'm really grateful for having had that experience because it has really, it really taught me a lot and it made it so I couldn't not look at what was going on with myself. I think before I had gone to Las Vegas, I know, I know that before Las Vegas, it happened. I really fought hard against becoming disabled and I've had MS for 20 years. Um, and I'm, I'm a young person, but in, in the grand scheme of things, that is a long time to have a progressive disease. And I just happen to be, I just happen to live in a young body. Um, and so so much, uh, and I, I think about this in terms of the work that I've done for so long, I really, I really didn't allow myself to, um, just accept what was happening. I really refused to, um, gracefully kind of keep myself safe and well. Like I didn't, I remember when I went to physical therapy for the first time and they said, you need a cane and thinking about like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be like a 30 something using a cane. Um, ugh, I don't like, I don't, I don't want to do that. And it was so much about not wanting it to, you know, I didn't want it to look that way. I wanted it to just be normal. And, and I, in so many ways, I am normal, but I really wasn't ready to accept what was. And then Las Vegas happened, and I I think for the first day or two after the conference, I was really, really heartbroken and very sad and very embarrassed. And then I just got angry. Um, and I, instead of... Yeah, I, I certainly couldn't turn that anger inward. So I started talking and I called Christy Harrison and I, I had met and spoken with Rebecca Scritchfield. And like I, I actively sought out opportunities to talk about what had happened um, because it was it was so icky. And I think about how much we as as humans um really don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable. I don't think anyone intended to, you know, hurt my feelings, but we have, and I think about this in terms of clients of mine and clients of yours who live in all different kinds of bodies, right? We, we have to make room for whomever is in the room. And it doesn't really matter to me whether or not it's because someone is disabled or someone lives in a larger body it is a human right to be able to be seen. Totally. And I, I'm, I'm, I feel really, really, really passionate about that. And I don't know, well, I don't, I don't know exactly where this is going to go, but it's going, it's going somewhere. So this is probably a very stupid uh, corollary to what you're saying, but 
it's one way that I've that I can sort of relate and that I've actually been thinking a lot about is my family and I live really close to Park City um, Resort and we go skiing every Saturday together. And lovely. It's a very different experience for me walking through a crowd of people when I'm wearing, you know, three or four different layers plus goggles and my whole face is covered up. And I like moving through the world like that is mm-hmm. I like is so different. And I've actually, before even talking to you today, I've actually thought a lot about how weird it feels when you try to like make eye contact and smile at someone and they, they don't even look at you. Whereas when I normally walk through the world, it's very easy to, um, to do that. Right. It's, it's part of my normal day that I don't even, I, I think I actually definitely take for granted. So I know that that's definitely not the same as what you're describing, but just a way that I can, that, that I've been thinking about myself, how, how weird it feels when people don't see you. Yeah, no, um, it's, it, that's, that's a really interesting and really relatable comparison. And, and I think you're right. It is odd when people don't, they don't see you. I think it's more odd when people actively don't, don't look at you. Um, and it, obviously if everybody's walking around in goggles and yeah, dawn yeah. in, in cold weather gear, um, you can't, you can't make eye contact with anyone anyway. But I think, I think about, and this is something that's happened more recently than not, like being in a wheelchair. I, I know I catch myself kind of smiling to compensate for other people's questions. And I look, I went, so I was in New York city, um, in, in New York state a couple of weeks ago and in the airport, in the airport, watching people like kind of look at my legs. So they look at my face and then they look at my legs to try and figure out like, mm. Can I, can I make a determination? Does, does she not have legs? I do have legs. They just don't work as well as they have. Um, and so it's really, it's really a very interesting thing to wa- to witness people witnessing me and really, or, or choosing not to. And it's more, I, I find that it's more the latter and I'm actually increasingly okay with, with the latter, um, but that it feels like that's more on my terms than, than otherwise it's because of the fact, like I, I actually am okay. If the world doesn't stare at me, I'm all right oh, with to- that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I feel comfortable. Right. Right. And that, that's definitely not what I hear you saying. It's not like everyone look at me, <laughs> but it's sort of like, can, can I move through the world and continue to be like, uh, like a basic human, have some yeah. basic human rights to be yeah. able to kind of like, have a seat at the table and be a part of what's going on, you know? Yeah, no, that's, that's what, what I would really love. So you it's, can... and it's a, go ahead. Oh no, you're fine. I was going to say one thing that I've really learned. One thing that's really been interesting to me in this experience of kind of moving through my disability is recognition and kind of acknowledgement of the fact that I I am no longer able to be fully independent. And I don't mean, like, I don't, nobody puts me in my car. No one walks, like, I, I perform all of the things that I need to in my day, like, my day-to-day. But I think about, like, going going to New York. I, I, ha- I happen to travel with a friend, um, 
But if I hadn't traveled with a colleague, I would have had to use a bellhop. I would have had to have someone help me because to get out of my wheelchair and open a weighted hotel door and then pull a bag behind me, it, like, that's, it's not actually physically possible. And so part of my, my journey to self-acceptance as, as a, a hugely independent human has become really recognizing the value of, of dependence and interdependence um, and, and finding, you know, it's actually, it's been kind of a treat to see if I can ask someone for help and it takes two seconds for someone to do something that I can't do. It makes me feel great because whatever I needed is completed, but it also feels really good for that other person who's helping. 100% true. And that, that I think is kind of like, it's the same way. It's the thing about gratitude. Like it just goes around and around and around in circles. So if I'm really grateful for someone helping me do something that would be a a five minute task, but they can do it in two seconds, they feel awesome. I feel great. And so I'm, I'm getting better at asking for assistance. That's a really, that's a really good way to look at it. Kind of like you're asking for help, but you're also giving, you're giving them something and you're, it's a gift that, that honestly, like a lot of people don't really have the opportunity to even do something small for somebody that makes a big difference on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I I was talking, I actually was talking about this with a client the other day and about how lovely it would be to be able to consistently do something to make someone else feel good or seen or to help someone even in a tiny way on a regular basis. Um, it's, it's just, it's a little bit more difficult than I think it should be. I think, I don't know. I don't know what the solution to that is, but we're all, we, I mean, our society values independence and hard work and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, doing it on your own. And I think that we sometimes lose sight of how important the other side of that coin is, which is like community and, and helping each other. Absolutely. And I, yeah, that's, I mean, I, there's some really deep stuff in all of that. And I think that mm-hmm. for you to, to go from having that experience at the conference to being able to kind of get to that place where you're asking for help on a regular basis and feeling and recognizing and noticing how that really does help other people. I think that's such a, that's such an amazing way to look at it. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know when I became this like really revel. I don't know when all of these revelations happened. <laughs> I don't think I'm a particularly profound person, but I'm, um, I'm really grateful to be and to have been open to these experiences and not just become kind of a grumbly, sad human. Totally. So you, you mentioned that you've been, you've had the diagnosis for 20 years and obviously 20 years ago looked different than it does now in terms of like your ability to get around and, and do things. Right. So, so when you, I, I, I've followed you long enough and kind of ran in similar circles with you long enough to kind of, I, I knew you before I, I started hearing you talk about what was going on for you. So, I mean, someone who's just getting to know you now is like, Oh, well, yeah, that's, that's Anna and, and no big deal. And I know that about her, but for you, that must've been kind of almost like a grand reveal. Like, okay, I'm, I'm talking about this now and I'm opening myself up and I'm being really vulnerable and all of that. That must've been hard in a lot of ways. 
it was really it was really difficult and I'm, I'm grateful but it was really really interesting because I so when I started my career um, at my first job I couldn't and this is before I was disabled and I've been a dietitian for 10 years um, and so when I started my first job and maybe I was disabled but I just didn't know that I had like a little limp but I didn't think that I did um, I wasn't allowed to talk about the fact that I had MS with my clients, which was, which was fine. Um, but it really, I, I didn't, I didn't have the most positive experience disclosing the fact that I was someone who lived with a chronic disease. It wasn't a positive experience professionally. Um, and so I really did try to just be Anna without MS. And I, it's so funny because I think about like my college admissions essay was about the fact that I had this disease or it was about the new normal. And I really didn't know at all what the new normal was going to look like. But for the sake of getting into college, I, <laughs> I wrote about it. Um, and so it, well, it has been, and I think it will continue to kind of be a bit of an about face in terms of uh, being a professional with a disability, because so much of the work that we do is about, and I'm, I'll talk about this from a professional perspective, but also from an interpersonal perspective, so much of the work that we do with our clients is about boundaries and about separating kind of what I'm sharing about myself with my clients. And obviously the clothing that we wear, the makeup that we wear or don't wear, like we, we are communicating with our clients. There is something, if you are walking into my office and I'm not just sitting in this chair, it is, there's something that either has to be disclosed or there's something that you are really curious about and you're sitting on the couch and you're saying, hmm, I wonder what that was. Like, did she break her? Oh, I don't know what that is. So there's this, level of disclosure that I don't have the ability to kind of, I can't, I can't ignore it anymore. So it's something that I, I bring into my client sessions and bring with me professionally a lot more readily than I did when I first started this work. Almost like you um, don't really have the choice now though, right? It's like, I, have, that I, choice but I, ha I don't have a choice. Yeah. It's gone. It's gone. And so either I, and, 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 and like, I'm so grateful for that page. Like, this is another thing I think about Iodep. That was so bad. Like it was, it was really, really cruddy. And I didn't have a choice about that. And I, I, but I did have a choice about the way that I reacted to that. And I have to tell you, being on this side of that experience, I actually feel like I have a lot more choice. I have a lot more ownership of my story and it's not so much about whether or not I'm disclosing that I have a disability because if you watch me walk, you will know that I have a disability. Like you'll know that. Um, and it's, it, but it just feels really different because there was something so raw and vulnerable about, I don't know what it was about the scooter. I, no, I do. Maybe it was the, like the beep, beep, beep sound that it made that was so loud and horrifying. <laughs> it was like sounds like a Mack truck backing up. That was uh, awful. Everyone turns and is like, whoa, yes. what's that about? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, that happened. Um, yeah, that was, that was awful. Um, it just, I feel like 
on this side of things, I actually am more in charge. I have more, I have more ownership of this. And I think it's, it's more about my actually being accepting of what is. So I went to Las Vegas, not fully accepting the fact that I needed a wheelchair if I was going to go to an airport or that I needed a walk aid or something to assist me mostly if I was going to walk. Um, I was, I was fighting that. And I remember walking around in my hotel room in Las Vegas. I fell in the hotel room because I didn't want to use a cane. Like that's silly. And I just, I just don't have time for that anymore. I, and I don't actually have any desire to do that. I have no desire to put myself at risk at all. And I think that I needed to have an experience that really was well beyond my control that I couldn't have done anything about. I couldn't control how people were going to res like respond to me um, to really recognize how much ownership and responsibility to myself that I actually have. But that also gives me, gives me, a, it gives me a ton of power. I like, I can be a powerful and disabled person at the same time. And it sounds like the, the idea of acceptance has been, a really, really important part of this whole process for you over the past year or so. And you know that I can't help but draw some parallels to like the work we do, right? The idea mm -hmm. of acceptance can feel, I'm sure for you even really scary and something you resist, but I'd love to hear your experience with exploring that and kind of what, what thoughts you have about that topic. So I, I wrote, I actually wrote my blog about some parts of this. So I'll share some of that here. Perfect. Um, I think that acceptance of this process has been just acceptance period has really been the greatest gift that I have ever given to myself. Um, but so starting from a very, very, very young age, and I, I'm going back to high school right now, like I really loved high heels and I thought they made me look so fancy and so sophisticated and like I was full of baloney, but I really thought that that was, you know, <laughs> it was all about the shoes. Um, and so I, I had shoes, like I had high heels. I wore them in high school. I wore them in college. I wore them in grad school. And I was, I don't know. I made a lot of meaning out of shoes. And I came to a point, and I think I actually know exactly when this was, I was at the end of my dietetic internship, and I got wobbly on, on shoes. I kind of started having a hard time going downstairs, and I realized then that like high heels and I really shouldn't be friends. Um, but I didn't stop buying them for many, many, many years after. And I didn't stop trying to wear them for way more years than I am proud to talk about uh, <laughs> because I, I had built up in my mind this idea of like, if I'm going to be this businesswoman, if I'm going to be a professional and I'm going to be respected, I should wear high heels. I should wear, like, I should be able to have the shoes that go with the whole, the whole look. And I know this sounds really superficial because it's just about a thing, but I, I really attached a lot it's of symbolic to it. And it really, it was symbolic. Yeah. Um, and, 
And I also, I was in charge of nutrition departments and eating disorder facilities when I was in my mid-20s. So my peers were in their 50s and I was in my 20s. And I, so this is where I was like, oh my gosh, I really need to be able to wear a high heel so I can like rise up Put to be with them. on their level, yeah. Yeah, ex exactly. Um, and so it took me a really long time and I don't remember exactly chronology of this, but I think I stopped being able to wear high heels in probably 2010. I don't think I stopped buying them until 2012. And this would look like me going to a shoe department and literally putting a shoe on my foot and maybe I would stand up and maybe I would walk around a little bit. Maybe I would just sit down and look at the shoe on my foot and say, oh, that's pretty. And I would buy it. And I took them home and I had, it wasn't a wall. I had like a big Tupperware container that I kept my shoes in. But I had this like bucket of shoulds. These were my should shoes. I should be able to wear this if I'm going to be uh, desirable, if I'm going to be respected. And I made, it, it just, it was so important to me that I could like fit this mold that I really wasn't able to fit anymore. Um, and so I ended up getting rid of my high heels, I think by the end of 2014. And so and now at this point in my life, I feel very, I mean, I do miss, I mean, high heels are beautiful. When you find the right high heel, it's a good shoe, but I don't feel sad about not being able to wear high heels anymore, but it's kind of crazy. Like I'm a very sane person. I couldn't wear shoes that I continued to purchase for years. That is, that I think is, I think a little crazy. But don't you think, I mean, to me, that's, that's speaking to the point of acceptance, right? Where it's just super hard to accept that you can't wear high heels totally. anymore. Totally. Totally. But I like, and when I tell this story to my clients, like I laugh, I laugh about it because it is, I was, I was fighting against gravity so hard. I was fighting against what was with such diligence that I was literally, I was putting money into something that like I couldn't, I couldn't have. And it was just like, that's, that's beyond illogical. <laughs> and I am not to say that I'm the most logical human on the planet. I think that I am rather rational. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't ready to accept that this was my reality. But, and I think, like, I think about that, like the number of our clients who keep clothing that they don't fit and the number of people on the planet who are trying to change their bodies to fit into some arbitrary mold. Like I, I'm, I'm just a human. I happen to be an eating disorder professional who talks about, healing body image and here I was carrying around a bucket of shoes that I could never wear again was that something that you like kind of had as like a little secret or was it something that you were like aware that was kind of illogical or just kind of like I'm not ready to deal with that quite yet or honest I don't think I knew I don't think I knew at the beginning um how illogical it was I think I probably had some sense that like oh maybe one day I'll be able to get back into these shoes um 
and at some point it definitely crossed the threshold of I'm wasting money on things that I cannot have and making myself feel badly because I can't, you know, this is no longer a part of my life. Um, but I don't, I don't know exactly when that transition happened. I think a lot of things happened around the same time and that made it possible for me to just accept kind of who and what I, I was and to not feel so embarrassed about being disabled. And I'm, I mean, I got rid of the high heel thing happened before I had up. Um, but the lesson fr from the high heel experience really didn't get solidified until IADEP happened. I can see that. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't able to really understand what it meant when I sold those shoes. So I, I've heard it said something along the lines of like acceptance isn't like giving up. It's allowing yourself to actually just be able be to like be clear about what you want, what you need, what, what's going on for you. I don't, I mean, that's super bad paraphrase of, of what I've seen said so eloqu eloquently, but what do you, what are, what are your thoughts about that idea of resisting acceptance and then finally sort of embracing it? And how do you, how do you feel that connects to the whole idea of, of what you do professionally? So, I think acceptance is a really hard concept first. I just want to say that I yeah. think acceptance is really difficult. And so often it gets confused and jumbled with this idea of resignation, right? If I accept myself as I am, then that just means that I'm okay with this, whatever quote this is. Right. Um, and, and the fact is, Acceptance doesn't, does not mean liking something. I think that that is a really important differentiation to make because most often we humans like feeling good. So accepting something that feels bad feels bad. And that's a really important thing to know that this is not always, go you know, it's not always going to feel good. But when you are operating from a place of acceptance, there is a common, <laughs> you can use the word acceptance, but there's this common acceptance, acknowledgement, agreement with this is the present moment truth, right? So, and as I said in my blog, right, I can say, I don't accept that gravity is a thing, but there's a reason that I'm sitting in this chair. There's a reason that I'm not floating away, right? I, I have to accept that gravity is in fact a real thing <laughs> and that is what keeps me on this planet it doesn't matter whether or not I like gravity if I'd rather be floating it doesn't matter gravity keeps me on the ground and so for me I think when I first started with my kind of my own acceptance practice my own self-acceptance practice it was about you know not liking what I was accepting and feeling a little bit uh, like going through my own grief process and being heartbroken and then being excited because there are new and different things that come from it. Um, but acceptance, I, I think, is such, is such a gift when we can get past 
the idea of it meaning something bad, when we can get past the idea of it meaning that you have given up, because it's not that. It is not those those two things. Acceptance is not the same as giving up. It's about being gentle. It's about being kind, right? It's it's about allowing what is to be what is. And it doesn't actually matter if you love what is in the moment, but you're so much more able to be kind to yourself and compassionate with yourself if you are living in present moment focused space. Yeah. That is such that is so beautifully said. And I feel like acceptance, while you did such a good job of explaining and, and giving the sort of um not caveat, but just the disclaimer, like it's super hard. Like that's totally. not 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 easy. But but I do I do see that so much with my clients where all of a sudden something clicks where where acceptance is is embraced and then it's so much easier to yep. start doing the stuff that's really in your best interest. Mm-hmm. It's so tough when you're resisting, resisting to feel at peace. I mean, because yes. by nature that isn't peaceful, right? Not at all. And, and, and I think about myself, I was, I was fighting, literally fighting against myself in a time when I needed to be my most compassionate ally, right? I needed to be able to be in the experience, acknowledging like, yeah, this is really hard. And yeah, I'm going to like have feelings about this and not being compassionate, not being accepting, didn't actually allow me to be in the moment and didn't allow me to be, it didn't allow me to be sad or angry or anything like that. It just, it, it always had me going to that next step because I wasn't allowing myself to be okay with what was. This has so many parallels to, you know, talking about nutrition, body image, food, eating, all of this stuff. It's like, I'm hoping people listening can take what you're saying and, and apply it to their own different situations because there might be someone listening who's like exactly resonating with you and your story. And there might be others listening who say, that's not my story, but I relate to it in this way. And it's, that's what I love about just having these types of conversations because it's like it all connects and it's yep. we, we all can learn from each other and the way you just explained acceptance and I mean that was like one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard seriously oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was amazing and so powerful and such a good reminder to anybody all of us who have various areas of our life where we're trying to accept what is and mm-hmm. even though it's not fun or not, not mm-hmm. pretty to look at or think about. And, and I don't mean pretty to look at in terms of like physical appearance. I just mean whatever you're oh looking gosh. at. <laughs> I always get a little nervous about saying the wrong thing on here, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I do. I do. Now, when I think about the way it transfers into the work that I do, and, and again, because of the fact that my disability is, is not invisible, um, I actually have the opportunity to selectively, but I have the opportunity to actually share some of my personal kind of road to self-acceptance stories with my clients. Um, And I've actually found that to be really quite powerful. And it's obviously, it's nothing that I haven't shared in my blog or spoken about it publicly otherwise. Um, But it's, 
it's really, as you were saying, this, this is human condition stuff. We are all on our own journey. And so being able to share, whether it's about accepting one's body image or one's relationship with food and kind of being willing to explore the idea of being gentle and being kind, because the fact is, and this is, this is kind of what I think brought me all the way home to self-acceptance. Um, I could be really nasty to myself. I could talk really unkindly about my body. I could wish that I was wearing high heels. I could lament my disability. And at the end of the day, I still had MS. And it didn't make anything better. It made my lived experience of being a human more difficult. And so, you know, thinking about it, like initially, did I think that I was being like a little bit of a wimp when I was like, I stopped the fight, stopped fighting the good fight, whatever that is. Um, but I actually like really entered my life because I stopped being such a bully and started being just gentle with myself, which opened up a million, which has opened up a million different doors, certainly in my own brain, but in the way that I, I do everything. Wow. Like we don't have to, yeah. we don't, we have the opportunity to be gentle with ourselves. And though I really believe that the language that we use in speaking of ourselves directly translates into the way that we feel. And it directly translates into the way that people and this is, this is hard, but I think if thinking about like the way that we want other people to treat us, if we model self-care and we model like setting our own standards, I saw some, there's some Instagram something that said like what the way you treat yourself is the standard you set for the way that other people are going to treat you or something, something to that effect. Um, being able to practice acceptance means that you don't have to be unkind. And and it sets the precedent for those around you to know that you're coming from that place and it not that not that it's our job to put other people at ease, but that's one of the results of what happens when you approach a room and you you radiate this sense of self-acceptance. I think people pick up on that and it's yep. it's pretty fun to be around you. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to like um, do what you were talking about that that one person did at the end of the conference with like patting you on the head, so to speak, and being like, "Thanks for smiling." Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think that that's anyone's job to to put everybody else at ease um, who might be uncomfortable by your physical presence or whatever. But just the idea of like, we all want that, right? We all want to be connected and to have relationships and connections and, and beautiful things like that in our life. And I think it's just so much easier when we're coming from that place. And it, what I will say since, since I had up and every time, and I've traveled a handful of times since I had up occurred, um, I have only had positive experiences of being a, in a, a disabled body. And again, I, I say that I am a very, very privileged disabled person. And so bringing, bringing my thin privilege, bringing like my, I am a white cisgendered married woman 
who's educated and supported and like sitting in a chair, people call me cute when I'm in like, oh, that's such a cute little chair. That's not, I mean, that's not helpful language at all. Um, but my experience of being disabled person is not like anybody else's on the planet that, like, that I have, that I have met. And I feel, you know, I feel really fortunate in that. Um, I feel like my journey to self-acceptance has been made a lot easier because of the fact that I have other, other physical characteristics, uh, like are, are okay. And I think that I like, that's actually really important for me to say out loud because my, my body acceptance story might look differently if I were accepting a different body. So true. And if, you know, one or two other variables were different about that, it, mm -hmm. it perhaps would be a lot more like you'd have a lot of other things stacked up against you. Right. It would, and it would be a lot more challenging. And so I, I certainly don't want to suggest that I am representing like what it means to be accepting and disabled at the same time. Yeah. I am, I'm just talking about my own, my own story. Um, because I think self-acceptance, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's hard and it's layered and it's going to be different for everybody. So true. So true. And I've loved what you've said. I think, I think that it's such important, like things to put out there into the universe, you know? And yeah, I think it's also important to acknowledge that everybody's situation looks different, but that doesn't mean we can't learn from each other. You know, I think that sure. that's, I think that it's so beautiful yep. to when, when, people are willing to share the, these types of things. It's so healing. It's so healing to know that you're not alone. It's healing to connect to someone who you might think is so different from you. Um, mm -hmm. But to recognize like we're all, we're all the same, you know, like we're all we are. the and we same. Are. Going through the same stuff, just in different ways. Totally. Um, can I, let me ask a question just related to anybody listening. I think, um, I'm hoping that this has been a, an interesting sort of perspective and window into what it's like to live with a disability. So um, I have I have a friend who has um, a baby with Down syndrome, and she has given me such interesting advice about how like how he moves through the world and how people treat him and when people do things that feel really good. And when do, when people do things that feel really icky and to her as a mom, and I've learned so, so, so much from her. And just on that same similar note, I'm curious, like what are things beyond what you've already mentioned about like just being seen and just like being a human? Um, what, what else would you kind of from your perspective and from your own story, give advice to people in terms of how, how to interact and how to, behave in a way that doesn't make someone feel like they're not being seen. So I think that even though you just paraphrased this, but I'm going to say this because it, I think it is really, really important to be really clear about the fact that if you are making a decision to not look at someone because you feel uncomfortable about the kid that wears a helmet or the woman with dermatitis or the person in a wheelchair or the person with a walker, whatever it is, whatever that different thing is, when, when you make that decision to not look at them, 
you need to know that what you are doing is erasing that person from the, your field of vision. You're not making them feel better because you're not looking. It is not a matter. Of, and I would have never had the ability to say this because I have certainly had my own experiences prior to becoming disabled thinking like, oh my gosh, I don't want to look because that, you know, that person looks different and I don't want them to think I'm staring. Um, literally, you are disregarding a human life. When you're not looking at that person, you are pretend, you are making it almost as though they don't exist on the planet. And that is about you and not them. And so it's really important when people are making decisions to, I mean, we're all on this planet together. And if the objective is for us to help one another make it on this planet, being seen is critical. And I would and also add, I love that. I would add that just to the list of the, you know, you said the woman with the, with dermatitis, the person in the wheelchair, also the person in a larger body. You Amen. Know? Like that is, that is something that I hear from so many of my clients, mm -hmm. just how discouraging it can feel to, you know, some people have the experience where they've had, they've had the experience of being in a smaller body and a larger body and the, the, the differences they feel as they move throughout the world. Right. Like it's so sad. Some of those Stories well, of just being erased. That's, yeah. that's racial, that's yeah. ethnic, the, sa the same things. Like anything, anything that makes, I mean, our, our bodies are not supposed to be the same. We are supposed to be like a rainforest of creatures, right? The, our human bodies are not supposed to look like what magazines suggest humans look like. Because even those humans don't look like those humans. Um we are, we're supposed to be this diverse collection. And I think it's just, it's, it's so, it's so important that we're able to really know if, if you're not looking, it's not, you're not helping anybody. That's that, not that helpful. No, not even, not even kind of, not even kind of. And if it's something that feels helpful for you, I would be really curious about what about that actually means. Look at yeah. that. Yeah. I totally. would want to look at that. I would want to look at that. That's, that's really great advice. And that's actually really similar to some of the stuff that my friend has, mm -hmm. has expressed to me about how just people will look away or people will, um, uh, certain really other really offensive things. Like what did you eat when you were pregnant and stuff? I mean, obviously, uh, like really, well, I mean, that's just, it's, it, it, the list of what she's had to endure goes on and on. And that's, um, I think the more we have these conversations, the more people can hear the stories of people on the other side and they can be sensitized to what their behaviors do to other people and just be, be aware that, you know, everyone wants to be seen and, and, um, treated like a human. I think, I mean, I think that's like Absolutely. Kind of on a that's basic a level. Baseline. Baseline. Needs. Baseline. Yeah. Baseline. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, is there anything else that you want to add to the conversation or that you want to say about this idea of kind of struggling and having an experience that really jumbled you up and then kind of slowly moving towards this idea of self-acceptance and being in a place right now where you feel like you feel like you're, you're doing it and you're doing incredible work, not only with your clients, but you've also done this study that I can't wait to see the results about. I know you can't talk about it, I can't. Um, but this study about clinicians and 
their own struggles with body image. Is it dietitian specifically or is it? So the research that I did was dietitian specific. And okay. I have to tell you, I really, really, really want to redo the study and like do it a million different ways. All of my data was very statistically significant. And it's, I think the most important lesson that I really got out of the research was that we are all humans, right? Even even us eating disorder practitioners, and I think there is something very unique for eating disorder practitioners kind of holding one another um, with this expectation that we are impervious to the influences of the culture. And that's just not real. It's just not real life. We are all susceptible to to the culture that we live in, this like fat phobic diet centric world affects all of us. And you know, if anything, we are, we are in it more because uh we are talking about it all day, every day. We're absorbing it. (laughs) Part, part of it, part of what I found was that that was really quite protective and Another part of what I found was that there was, and I actually feel pretty comfortable sharing this because I think this is just a really cool and sad, but a really cool um, piece of information. I asked a question about how people felt in their bodies after leaving a collegial setting. Um, and it was, I felt better. I felt the same. I felt worse. I remember that um, question because I took the survey. <laughs> No one said that they felt better. More people said that they felt worse. No, pardon me. Sorry. No one said that they felt the same. Like 12 people said that they felt better and a hundred and some people said that they felt worse. Hmm. That's profound that we are getting together in collegial settings and we're leaving feeling badly about our bodies. Wow. That's a fascinating thing. Yeah. And so many of those, you know, settings are centered around concepts mm-hmm. about body image. So that's, I mean, that's really interesting. And the number of people I've spoken to after, <laughs> after the fact, after that survey, uh, there have been a number of people who have said, you know, if I would have taken that again, or maybe taken that like at a different time, I think I might have answered those questions a little bit differently. So I think that there is some bias that's implicit in in the study itself, just because I'm asking a group of eating disorder practitioners about their feelings about body image. And there's so much um, layered expectation that we are supposed to like, again, we're supposed to rise above. And we're also just humans. We're also just humans. And so I feel like I had this really, and have this really unique opportunity to speak about what it means to have a a difficult experience with a body. And obviously I am a party of one, as far as I'm concerned, I don't, I don't know any other eating disorder dietitians who live in disabled bodies. They might exist. I don't know them. If they do exist, I would like to know them. Um, but I'm using this platform to hopefully change some of our conversations so that we as professionals can support one another in being human. Mm. Amen to that. That is so beautiful. I love it. Oh, 
Okay. Anything else you want to add? <laughs> no, no. I, thank you so much, Paige. I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to have this talk. And I just, I hope that anything that I said was helpful or it was, um, every we'll word was gold to your people. Every single word was golden. You did an amazing job. Just take a quick sec and talk about how people can get in touch with you. Anybody local to you, Absolutely. maybe reach out or whatever. Uh, so I am at Dietitian Anna, two T's, no C, um, because people want to spell dietitian with C's, but there are two T's in dietitian. Um, on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm newly obsessed with Instagram. <laughs> it's not good. Um, but <laughs> I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. It is a time suck, but it's really, um, I don't know. At this point, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. This is like how I found you, Paige. So totally. I have no, uh, there's no remorse. Oh yeah. Um, no, it's great. It's great. a great way to connect with awesome people. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you can get me, um, at Anna at wholeliferd.com and my website is wholeliferd.com. I am whole life nutrition counseling on Facebook. Um, any way you can find me. I would ha be happy to connect with anybody. Great. And Great. I'll add all of that to the show notes so that people Beautiful. can reach out and um, find your website. And there's probably social links on there too, right? Totally. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Anna, for being here. I've just thoroughly enjoyed every second of our conversation. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Absolutely. Thank you, Paige. Well, I sincerely hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't already, please go ahead and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you soon for another episode.